Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to CoastalOaksChurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. You can be seated if you have a copy of God's Word. I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24 this morning. We're going to begin in verse 13. Luke 24, verse 13. It was in January of 1986 that I walked out of a hospital room in El Paso, Texas out into the waiting room, down a corridor, in an elevator, and out the lobby. I had just said goodbye to my mother. She had just breathed her last breath and gone to be with the Lord. And I was a mess. I was confused. I was sad. I was lonely. I felt empty. And I probably asked God every question you could ask on that walk away from the hospital that day. Going through that event put me in a place where I reached out to God, and he met me there. We're going to look at an account in Scripture this morning of two disciples of Christ, two Christ followers, who were very much in the very same state of mind that I was in that January in 1986 as I walked away from saying goodbye to a loved one. Let's pick up the story. Verse 13. Now that same day, Two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. That same day, this is Resurrection Day. Earlier that morning, the Lord had risen from the grave, given the word to the women who came to the tomb. And these two disciples hadn't gotten that word from Jesus. They're walking away from Jerusalem to Emmaus, seven miles away, a few hours' walk. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing... Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them, but they were prevented, by rec- prevented from recognizing him. So they're walking on the road. It was custom when travelers are walking in the same direction, they would group up together and, and walk and talk to make the trip go a little, bit, a little bit shorter. So this stranger walks up to these two followers of Christ and begins to talk with them. But the Bible says that they were prevented from recognizing that it was him. So for however God did that, they did not know that this was Jesus walking with them. Verse 17, then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. So they literally stopped in their tracks. They can't believe that this stranger walking from Jerusalem with them would ask that question. So they're discouraged, the Bible says in verse 17. Then the one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? Can you believe he asked Jesus that question? Jesus, are you the only one? They don't know what's Jesus, do they? They just say, Stranger, are you the only one that doesn't know what's going on in Jerusalem? Remember we said last week as we looked at the triumphal entry that the whole city of Jerusalem, Matthew says, was shaken because of the events of that weekend. The whole populace knew about it, so they can't understand. Here's this person who doesn't know what's gone on. So Jesus asked them, look at verse 19, what things, he asked them, have you found like I have that God often asks questions he already knows the answer to? 
So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus the Nazarene, who is a prophet powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was sent to redeem Israel. Beside all this, it's the third day since these things happened. That, that's interesting in verse 21. But we had hoped that he was going to be the one. Last week as we talked about the cheers of the crowd who said Hosanna, they were expecting Jesus to come on the scene and be the deliverer who would deliver them from Roman oppression, who would be a political leader, who would be a military leader, who would ride in on his white horse and put down the Romans and lift up the Jews. That didn't happen at that time. It's going to happen in the future, but at that time it didn't. So they were expecting that. Look at verse 21. But we were hoping. It shows that they're not sure who Jesus was and really what he had done for them. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they'd seen vision of angels who had said he was alive. Who'd said he was alive. Interesting, it says some, some from our group that this is an identification that these two had been a part of the group of disciples, not the 12, but that group of those who followed Jesus. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, but, as the women did, had said, but they didn't see him. Again, their, understa- their, their understanding is that it's just a testimony, it's just a story, but we really haven't seen him. And he said to them, verse 25, How unwise and slow you are to believe in your hearts all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Here's what Jesus says to them. He doesn't scold them for not believing the testimony of the women. He doesn't scold them for not believing the stories that people had seen a risen Lord. In essence, he challenges them because they didn't believe what the scriptures had said about him. Didn't Messiah have to suffer? So look at verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Moses and the prophets would be a a Jewish rabbi's way of saying the scriptures. The Old Testament, Moses, the first five books, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all through there, and then the, the books of the prophets. That's how they referred to the Old Testament scriptures. So Jesus basically takes the Old Testament, which was the the word of God they had written at the time, and begins to explain to them how all the Old Testament scriptures apply to him. Verse 28, is that where I am? Okay, thank you. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Again, another custom of the day is if you met a stranger on the road and you were traveling, and you came to a place where the stranger could lodge for the night, it was just common courtesy to have that person come and stay. Sometimes that person even invited themselves. But Jesus pretends like he's going on, because he knows that as he's explained the scripture to them, their hearts have been stirred. Look at that. They urged him, verse 29, to stay with us. Here's what they're saying. We want to know more. Everything you've said as you've walked through the Old Testament scriptures, it's making sense to us now that Messiah really did suffer. It was the purpose. It was God's plan. We want to know more. So Jesus goes with them. He went in to stay with them. Verse 30 says, as he was reclined at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. As some have, have uh, 
guessed or, or some have uh, tried to figure out what was going on there. Some have said that he actually gave communion to them. I don't believe that happened. I believe they just broke bread. But it's interesting. Jesus took the role as the host in their home, and he breaks the bread and presents it to them. Verse 31, then their eyes were open, and they recognized him. Then their eyes were open as he broke the bread with them, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. So they said to each other, I love this verse, weren't our hearts ablaze within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? And that very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them and gathered together who said, the Lord has certainly been raised and has appeared to Simon. They began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them by the breaking of bread. Immediately, once they recognize they've met with Jesus, they go back to Jerusalem to tell the rest of the disciples, we've seen him. He's alive. Well, I have five points of application, five truths, uh, principles from this passage this morning. I had about 10, but I was going to be gracious to you and I narrowed it down to five. Aren't you glad? Let's look at the first truth. Jesus meets us on the road of our pain and despair. Jesus meets us on the road of our pain and despair. You have two followers of Christ discussing and arguing, the Bible says in verse 15, discussing and arguing the events that had just taken place that weekend. What they're saying is, I believe, why did it happen that way? I can't believe the Lord's gone. And they're struggling with the the truth of the crucifixion. They know that their Savior came. He didn't deliver them like they'd hoped. He just laid down his life, and he died on the cross. He was tortured brutally and murdered. Those are the events that they're talking about. They're in pain. They're in grief. They're in despair. They're disillusioned. They're discouraged. Jesus meets them on that road. The road to Emmaus is a picture of of, of the road of, of despair and discouragement. They're walking away from Jerusalem. I don't know about you, but when I, when I have to process something difficult, I like to just get away. Sometimes I get in my car or my truck and I just drive. Sometimes I go and I walk just to, just to try to process what's happened to me. That day my mother died, I did that. I just went for a walk to try to figure out what was going on. That's where they were. That's where Jesus met them. Folks, there are only some conversations that can happen on the road to Emmaus. There are some conversations that we can only enter into with one another when we've been to that point of grief and and despair and disillusionment. That's where they were. Jesus offered them companionship in their confusion. He offered them his presence. A few years ago, One of our church members called and shared that her son was about to die, and we, Kelly and I, rushed to the hospital and got there and were able to be there as this young man went home to be with Jesus. About the same time, we got another phone call that Kelly's dad had had a heart attack at that same time, and and in the midst of this family, this church member's grief and, and our anxiety and our difficulty, there was a special bond that was formed that day. And the only reason there was a special bond was because we both went through heartache at the same time. God allowed us to be there. And you know what? Jesus showed up. See, that's what what happens in the time of crisis when you're on the road to despair. Jesus shows up. He walks after you. Isn't that great? He, He 
For some of us, he runs after us. I love the story of the prodigal son. Remember the story? The Bible says that he took his father's inheritance and wasted it away on wild living. And then when he was coming down the road, working on his, his prayer, he's, he's, he's reciting this, I'm not prayer, but he's reciting this speech of forgiveness to his father. The Bible says his father ran to meet him. And that story's more about the loving father than it is about the prodigal son. That, that's our heavenly father meeting us on the road of crisis and discouragement. I love that. What road are you on today? Jesus will meet you there. Number two, the scriptures reveal the person of Christ. The scriptures reveal the person of Jesus Christ. The scriptures are the word of God. In verse 27, the Bible says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. This is God's word. It is God's inerrant word. Some people call it infallible. It means without error, without any falsehood. We believe it is God's word. We may not understand everything in it, but we believe it's God's word. Like one guy said, I believe it from the table of contents to the maps. That's all of it. He believes it all. I, I believe this is God's word. God speaks to them through the scriptures and reveals who he is. Jesus, can you just, I just, to be there and have the son of God, the living word of God, taking the written word of God and sharing how the written word of God reveals that he is the living word of God. Powerful moment. The Bible says it was powerful for these two. I would, I, I would think that, the Bible says he went back to Moses and the prophets, that, that Jesus probably went back to Genesis and talked about creation and showed how God created this, this great universe and this, this perfect world and, and placed in the middle of this perfect world the Garden of Eden and, and placed a, a couple, Adam and Eve, there who had perfect, uninterrupted, intimate fellowship with God. And God gave him the responsibility to, to rule and reign his creation. Probably reminded them of how Adam and Eve sinned by taking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and rebelling against God and how God sent a fallen angel, Satan, the serpent, to come in and to tempt them to do that. And in those scriptures in chapter 3 of Genesis, it says that, that one day that, that someone will come, Messiah will come and crush the head of Satan to put a final blow to Satan. So Jesus probably did that in Genesis chapter 3 and worked his way maybe into Genesis chapter 12 where the Bible talks about the call of Abram and, and, and the, the Abrahamic covenant is that God will bless all the nations of the world through Abraham. How could that be? Because God would send Messiah through Abraham's lineage. And maybe he went on to the book of Exodus when the children of Israel were delivered from, from bondage of Egypt and they were told to take a Passover lamb and to sacrifice that lamb and put the blood over the doorposts and Jesus may have said to them, I'm that Passover lamb. Messiah is that Passover lamb. And there may be going on in the book of Psalms where the psalmist talked about Jesus being, the Messiah being pierced for our transgressions. Maybe on into the book of Isaiah where it speaks of a suffering servant who would be so tortured and brutally beaten that nobody would recognize him. And he'd be pierced for our sins and whipped and and, and by our stripe, his stripes, we'd be healed. He probably tall, tied all that in in the book of Isaiah and none of the prophets who talked about him riding in on a donkey and how maybe the virgin birth and all those details leading up to the resurrection just through the scriptures. See, that's what God wants to do. He wants to take his word and reveal himself to you. This is not a storybook. This is not just literature that we study. 
It's not even just a book about things that happen to a bunch of people with funny names and events that we can't figure out. It is God's revelation of himself to us pointing to the Savior. See, this whole this whole word of God was written to say Jesus is the one, Jesus is the way. In John chapter 14, his disciples are talking with him and, and, and Jesus says, I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again to receive you so that where I am, there you will be also. And they said, Lord, how can we know where you're going? How can we know the place? And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. This book, the scriptures, reveal the Son of God that we can trust him as Savior. Let me tell you something. God took his scripture, took his word, and he stirred the hearts of these two. Look at verse 31. They, they opened their eyes, they recognized him, and then verse 32 says, they said to each other, weren't our hearts ablaze within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? See, this is the truth of the word of God. This is God's word to us. He used it to stir their hearts. He wants to use it to stir our hearts. Gathering for worship is not all about emotion. It's not all about feeling good. However, we do like to to come and worship and and have the emotional connection. It, It is more than that. It is about taking the truth of the word of God and hearing it and letting God's Holy Spirit apply it to our hearts. See, without the word of God, we wouldn't know the son of God. We would not have a relationship with him. And this would be just another meeting. It'd be just another concert, another gathering. The scriptures reveal the person of Christ to us, and he stirred their hearts. When I was a kid after church, we would go to Luby's Cafeteria in El Paso. It was our tradition, and we had the little kind of serpentine line. You watched, you know, the food, and my, I would drool. This, the closer I got to the food, I can hardly wait to get. I always wanted to jump over those, those burgundy cords, can I just jump over and get in line here? We'd get up there, and I usually had fried fish and macaroni and cheese, or I, or I, or I had a, a beef cutlet with mashed potatoes and gravy. I, that, that's what I looked forward to. Are y'all hungry yet? So I'd get up there, and the, the lady that served the gravy always did something I really appreciate. I didn't understand what she was doing until later, but she would always take the ladle, and she'd stir the gravy before she gave it to me. You know why? Because the gravy on top gets cold. Just the air gets the gravy cold, and she stirred it up so my mashed potatoes had good, hot gravy. We have a tendency to get cold. Sometimes it's apathy. Sometimes it's indifference. Sometimes it's out-and-out rebellion against God, and God wants to stir us. You know how he does it? He takes his word, the truth of his word. He stirs our hearts. If you've find yourself at a place where you're distant from God, first of all, guess who moved? He didn't. You did. One way to get back in fellowship with him is not to have an emotional time where you maybe have warm fuzzies about getting reconnected to God. The way you get reconnected is you go to his word. You let him speak to your heart. I'd encourage you, if you're, if you're in one of those places in your walk with Christ and you know Christ as Savior, but you're cold and indifferent. Go to, the, go to the Psalm 119. It's one of my favorite psalms. It's, it's a psalm about the word of God. I love it. You read the word of God, tell it talking about the word of God, and just spend time in there. Meditate on those paragraphs and let God take his word and restore and renew you. 
Let him stir you. Number three, the third truth, the, the cross was part of God's perfect plan to provide forgiveness of sin. The cross was part of God's perfect plan to provide forgiveness of sin. See, the death of Christ offered the people hope because without the death of Christ, there was no shedding of blood. There was no redemption from sin. The choir helped us sing about it this morning. We sang about it um, all morning, about the fact that what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. See, he was the perfect sinless sacrifice who gave his life on a cross in our place. Now, these two disciples were having trouble connecting the dots. They, they couldn't understand why their Messiah, who they thought was going to deliver them, why their Messiah submitted to Rome and laid his life down and gave it up, let them torture him and ridicule him and put him to shame and die on a cross. They could not understand it. So Jesus went to the scriptures and said, wait a minute, this wasn't God's plan B. This wasn't God out of control. This wasn't God saying, oh, I'm powerful, but not more powerful than Rome. This was God saying, all of this is part of my plan. I gave my son. The Bible says he's the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. You know what that means? That's in God's perfect plan from eternity past to send his son to save us. The cross is his perfect plan. He had to die so that he could conquer death. By the way, he didn't just conquer death so he, we could say he's alive. He conquered death for us. Can you, can you make the connection here? The cross was Jesus taking our sins on himself. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. It just means that he, he took our sins on the cross, the penalty and the payment for our sins at the cross. But then the Bible says he rose again so that he could be the first fruits of those who die. That's us. So he died on the cross for us to pay the price for our sin in our place. He rose again for us so he could defeat death in the grave. I tell you what, to walk out of a hospital room and to lose a loved one, as hard as it is, there is a deep peace in knowing that that loved one is going to be in heaven because of the resurrection. See, he died for us so that he could be raised for us. Number four, Jesus is alive, and his presence changes everything. They finally came to that conclusion there. He's alive. He's alive. We've seen him. His presence in the midst of their pain. He shows up in their despondency and says, here I am. Verse 31 says their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Now that, that's not their eyes are open this way. That's their spiritual eyes. Like we pray every, every Sunday morning, God, open our eyes from Psalm 119, by the way. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your instruction. Their spiritual eyes are open, and they see that he's there, and he's with them. Again, bringing his presence in their pain and his companionship in their confusion. Folks, don't fail to recognize the living Lord in our midst. This choir doesn't sing the way they do. This worship team doesn't worship the way they do. We're, we're doing this because Jesus Christ has made a difference in our lives. Listen, one of the ways you'll know that you've trusted Christ as Savior, your life will not be the same. You will be different. His presence changes everything. Change these two. 
They went from, woe is me, walking down the road of pain, to we got to get back to Jerusalem and tell them all about it. When my son was about four or five years old, we bought him a turtle. And we bought the little aquarium and put the turtle in his room. And I can't remember what the name was, but we had the turtle in there. And Cameron just loved that turtle. We were sitting there, I think, the first day that he got the turtle. And we're, it was late at night, and we're getting ready for bed, just kind of laying there talking like fathers and sons do. I love doing that. I miss that. And he's just laying there, and he's like this, and he's just looking, and he's thinking. My son was always thinking. He still is. He's the thinker. He says, Dad, isn't it something how one turtle can change a whole room? I said, that's right, son. It's a different room now, isn't it? The reason the turtle changed the room is because the turtle was the focus of his attention that day. See, his ordinary room was not ordinary anymore because he had a new turtle. He had this new relationship. Our lives should not be the same because of the presence of Christ in our life. Isn't it funny, Dad, how one turtle can change your room? Isn't it interesting how one person, the person of Jesus Christ, can change everything? Number five, fifth truth, and I'll be done. I've got more if you want to hear it later, but this is all for now, okay? Agreeing with the truths of Scripture is not enough. Don't miss this, folks. To agree with the truth of Scripture is not enough. We must meet Jesus personally. These two Christ followers talked about him being a prophet, talked about him being Jesus of Nazarene, talked about how he healed people, how he was, had power before people, how the priests had offered him over to be sentenced to death, how he'd been crucified. They had all the facts and details about what had happened, but they had not met Jesus, the risen Lord, personally until he revealed himself to them. Let me tell you, it's not enough to agree that this is truth. You have to apply it to your life. You have to know that you know, not that just that Jesus died for sins, but that he died for your sins. You have to know that Jesus wants you to turn your life over to him. Not just everybody, but you. It needs to be personal. The old evangelist used to say, some people miss heaven by 18 inches. The distance between here and here. In other words, they have a head knowledge of who Jesus is and what he did, but they have no heart knowledge. They have not made a commitment of their life to him. I'm passionate about this truth because my story is that when I was a little boy, some, my family said, we ought to, you ought to join the church and be baptized because all my friends were doing it. So I said, sure, sounds good to me. We made an appointment with the associate pastor of the church. We sat down in his office and I was a little nervous because I knew he was going to ask me questions. But I'd been going to Sunday school since I was a little kid. I remember the smell of the nursery, those little red blocks we used to play with, the vanilla wafers and tang. Takes me back. So I was ready. So he says, Kevin, do you believe that Jesus is God's one and only son? Yeah? Of course I do. You've been telling me that since I was little. Yes, I do. Do you believe that he died on a cross for you? 
Yes, I've been told that since I was little too. Do you believe that if you trust him as your savior, you'll go to heaven? Yes, I've been told that since I was little too. Would you like to go to heaven? Sure. Let's pray. Y'all, I don't even remember praying a prayer. I just remember answering the questions. Walked an aisle the next Sunday morning, and they put my name down, and they baptized me, and I had my name on the roll. But that's all. See, there was no decision of my will to give my life to Christ. There was no repentance. There was no sorrow for my sin. I, I didn't connect the dots that my sins were what crucified Christ. I just answered a bunch of intellectual questions about the Bible. It's not enough. It wasn't until I was a teenager, 18 years of age, that I realized that it was more than just knowing the facts. I needed to know the Savior. And that's when I understood that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. That's when I invited Christ to come into my life and take up residence, to take over, to be my Lord and my Savior. That's when I was saved. Folks, there's a big difference in knowing about him and knowing him personally. Just looking across the page here from Luke 24, there's John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believed in his name, to those who received him. I love that verse. See, as a little boy, I, I went through the motions, but I never received him. As a teenager, I understood that he died for me and that I needed to receive him. A while back, a family in our church called me and said, Pastor, we have a gift for you. We'd like you to come to our house and see it. So, sure. Actually, I don't even know if they said I had a gift. They just said, we've got something for you. So I, I went. I don't know what I was going to encounter, but they walked out and handed me a Taylor guitar. I had said somewhere in a conversation somewhere that I always wanted a Taylor guitar. They heard it. I don't know when I said that. It must have been years ago. They just, they, they filed that back in the back of their mind. And by the way, did I ever mention that I want a Ferrari? I just <laughs> throw that out there. Oh, back to the guitar. They had me in mind when they saw this guitar hanging in a music store. And they said, you know what? Pastor said he wanted a Taylor guitar. Let's get that for him. They bought that guitar. They bought a case for that guitar. They had it all ready for me. They're in their home. They said, here's this guitar. Pastor, it's just for you. It's what you said you wanted. Man, I was, I was blown away. Well, what if I have said, wow, cool guitar. That is a tailor. It's going to sound great. Thank you. Bye. That would be pretty stupid, wouldn't it? To, to, to know that somebody purchased this gift with me in mind, that somebody extended this gift to me, Pastor, we want you to have this because it's something you need and you want, for me to walk away from that? I would never do that. But that's what some of us have done when Christ says, I love you so much that I've purchased your salvation by giving my life on a cross to pay the price for your sin, and I extend this gift to you. It's called eternal life. John chapter 1 says, will you receive it by faith? That's what I'm asking some of you to do today. To, to move beyond intellectual knowledge, to move beyond, yes, it's Easter Sunday morning and we talk about the cross, we've talked about the empty tomb, we've talked about the resurrection, to appropriate it to your life. And trust Him by faith. 
See, to trust Jesus is more than just to understand. It's a decision. If I had a stool right here, there was a stool earlier. <laughs> it's gone. If I had a stool right here, and I would say, this is, this is a good stool. It's been well-constructed, and I bet it will, it will hold somebody my weight. And um, I like that stool, and I'm glad that's, that's just a really cool stool, and it'll... And I could talk about the stool all day long, but until I walk over and sit down in it, I haven't put my weight on it, right? I'm really not trusting that stool is going to hold me up. That's what faith is. It's to say, I'm going to place all my faith in that thing to hold me up. Faith is, I'm going to place all my faith in Jesus Christ and trust him for my salvation for my eternity. Not church membership, not being baptized, not going through the motions but a decision of my will to trust him as Savior. Have you done that today? I pray that you would. If this morning you would recognize that Jesus Christ is God's one and only Son, he is who he claims to be, he did what he said he would do, he died for you and he rose from the grave. If you would believe in your heart with a decision of your will, saying I'm willing to turn away from my sin, lay my life down, and allow Christ to come live within me to be my savior, to be my boss. That's the decision I'd like to encourage you to make this morning. It's not just praying a prayer. It's praying a prayer that expresses the intent of your heart. 